This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Tethered, the makers of the most badass saddle gear you can find. Of course, I've been using their Mantis Saddle and Predator platform for some time now, but they have a few new things cooking. And the first thing to come out is the recently released Versa Strap that they just came out with. Uh, this Versa Strap is a woven, uh, ultra-high molecular weight uh, fibers. It's usually what you would hear referred to as Dyneema or Amsteel. And this, of course, is one of the strongest fibers on Earth. It's used in a, in a host of products. But if you're using a Mantis Saddle already, you probably already recognize that Amsteel is what your bridge is made out of. What's the benefit to the hunter? Well, it's super strong, and you do not sacrifice any uh, weight issues. Literally, you get four of these straps daisy chain straps uh, which would outfit all four of your sticks and the total weight for all four of those straps is 4.4 ounces that is versus you know what you would usually get with your uh, sticks with the buckle and etc etc which is is a lot more that one strap will weigh a lot more than all four of your uh, daisy chain versus straps so they have three different versions out that you can choose from they have a mini versus strap this one is actually really well suited for those uh, smaller versa buttons so those that you know would come on the lone wolf custom gear sticks hunting bee sticks or if you're diy in your sticks and using small versa buttons that is probably the one that you want uh, again 4.4 ounces for a four pack and the average breaking strength is 50 pounds, which is crazy strong. The second option they have is the Versa strap. This one is three quarter inch, inches wide uh, and weighs four grams per foot, so 0.14 ounces. And this one you would want to use more for those uh, sticks that have larger Versa buttons like the Lone Wolf sticks, Hawk Helium sticks, and things of that nature. Again, 4.4 ounces for a four pack and 1500 pounds average breaking strength. They also have a Poly Versa strap. Now, this one is uh, three quarters inch wide. And it weighs just a little bit more, when I say a little bit more, 5 grams per strap or 0.15 ounces. And this one is perfect for versus buttons that are 1.25 uh, inches in di diameter or more at the, the widest point. So again, this would be good for your lone wolf sticks, hawk helium sticks, etc. These ones, however, aren't quite as strong 
as the mini Versa and the Versa strap, uh, but the average weight breaking strength is 800 pounds, so well above what you would need for sticks. So if you'd like to learn more about their Versa strap options or any of their saddle gear, head over to tetherednation.com. That's T-E-T-H-R-D-N-A-T-I-O-N.com and check it out. We're also brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew is a company that my wife and I started to give back to conservation. Every purchase that is made, 10% of all of our profits go back to support nonprofit conservation organizations like RMEF, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, QDMA, and the Nature Conservancy. You, when you choose a product and you head to checkout, you choose which organization receives your portion of the of the donation. We recently launched a new product, uh, so we have now a light roast for all you light roast coffee drinkers out there. It is a Ethiopia Harar, which is a little higher in caffeine, so it starts your engine in the morning. It's killer hot, or if you're like me, I really dig it as cold brew. So head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com and check it out and pick yourself up a bag today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 133. Today we're jamming into another DIY report with the Look Back series with Greg Litzinger, and we're also joined by my buddy, Wilson McSwain. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is going on out there? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you all are doing well out there in the whitetail world. It's uh, I know I keep saying it, but it is one week, uh, one week closer. I actually think I saw some stuff on uh, social media where we got some uh, some of our brothers and sisters in the South. I think Florida is uh, is already kind of kicked off their season. Actually, I saw a dude drop a hammer in Florida. I didn't know that deer. I didn't know they had deer that size in, in Florida. And if I had known that, maybe I would have uh, maybe I would have hunted Florida more often when I was living there. But, uh, but nonetheless, we're a week closer here for the most of us, uh, it, it, uh heading towards whitetail season. Everyone's kind of, you know, pressing for the, the last few tweaks. I see a lot of folks are kind of, you know, getting ready for their fall food plots and stuff like that right now. And I think I've kind of, I think I've officially decided that I'm not going to do a fall food plot this year. I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of let the, the property back home, let it ride and uh, see what happens. Haven't even done a camera pool there yet. That won't happen until, um, I guess the last weekend of this month, uh, very beginning of September, is when I'll actually do that card pool. I'm bacheloring it up here for a couple of days. Uh, the wife and, and kid went back home to visit some family, so I'm going to be uh, footloose and fancy free, if you will. So there'll be a lot of uh, probably archery stuff going on in the evenings. Um, kind of continue to dial in my dial in my gear. Um, this past weekend, though, you know, nothing too crazy. Again, kind of fought the urge to try to get into the timber and check my cameras. I mean, I cannot buy a day of rain while I'm off from work. It seems like I get nice showers periodically through the week. Um, that would be really great to have over the course of the weekend. Uh, so I could get in and do another camera check and start to move some of these things around. Cause I, as I had mentioned in the previous podcast that John and I did, I'm going to try a new, uh, a new approach to some mock scrapes. And so I really want to get in there and make some changes, um, check the cameras, you know, at least one more time and, and see what I have on camera here for the summer and then start transitioning them to the places where I'll just kind of set them and let them for the uh, for the fall. But I'm really, you know, I've been good so far and not gone in and, and busted anything up. I know that I have a few good deer, so I, I don't need to go in tra- uh, traipsing around. 
necessarily, but I would like to get the cameras moved in these, uh, these new mock scrapes put in, um, to put these cameras over, but we'll just continue to bide our time. I looked at the forecast this week again, and it looks like the only bit of rain we're going to get is like midweek, of course, while I'm at work. And then it looks like the weekend, you know, is going to be really nice, which is great. You know, really nice weather that like this past weekend was, was, was killer. I think the high was like 82. So it was nice to get outside and do some shooting and not completely die. Um, so other than that, you know, this past weekend, I also, you know, one thing I like to do this time of year and I start, I start a little earlier usually, but right now is when I really kind of ratchet it up, which is I actually get into the saddle, climb into a tree in my backyard and I start shooting out of it. Um, and you know, I'll do it a handful of times in the spring and, you know, earlier in the summer, I'll, I'll jump up into the, the saddle and, and, and fling some arrows. Um, you know, especially with the new setup this year that I have, it's, I spend a fair amount of time on the ground, just kind of learning my gaps because I shoot a single pin, um, set at 25 yards and I'm pretty, I'm, I'm confident out to 35, 37 with that 25 yard pin. So I spend a lot of time working on my gaps to make sure that I'm, I know what I'm doing, um, whenever I'm having to hold off, off the mark or whatever. Um, you know, and I will jump into the saddle and, and, and take some shots, but this time of year now, usually whenever August hits is whenever I'll spend a, a fair amount of time. Um, you know, at least one or two sessions a week will be in the saddle and shooting from elevation. I don't climb super high. I think I'm climbing maybe 10 feet, uh, just something to get the elevation. So I can get familiar with the saddle under, you know, get, get used to feeling it again. Um, and shooting out of it just is different than standing on flat ground, just like it would be if you're shooting out of a tree stand. I think it's one of the things that folks kind of miss out on. You shoot a lot from the flat ground. Um, unless you're still hunting or you're hunting out of a ghillie suit on the ground, it's like, you're likely not going to take a shot at, at that flat angle, almost nearly, you know, never in the whitetail woods. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's, it's good to practice that way to kind of get your gear dialed in. But I think until you get an elevation and start shooting from that type of position, you know, I think that's when you really figure out whether, how accurate you are and how consistent you are. So was able to get up into the tree yesterday, flung some arrows. The other thing I like to do too, is if I'm, if I'm going to be using anything new, um, I start to try to figure out the system. So if I'm going to be bringing anything new into the tree with me, you know, I'll do that even whenever I'm shooting my bow out of the, uh, out of, out of the saddle, um, just to kind of practice getting up into the tree, get my stuff set up. And that goes for everything. Like, you know, um, if I've got a new jacket and now this time of year, I'm not busting out the jacket or whatever. Um, you know, cause it's a little too hot for that, but if, you know, as we get closer to fall and we hit September and I get a nice cool day, you know, and I, and I got a new piece of clothing that I'm going to be wearing whenever the weather drops, it's like, if I get a nice cool day, it's like, I will climb into the tree and I will put that article of clothing on and I will shoot with it just to kind of get a sense of how it's going to feel. You know, does it change how I'm holding my bow? I mean, you know, we all know when we get into the tree and we get layered up or we put gloves on or whatever, it just changes how things feel. So I try to mimic those things as much as possible. And the one new thing that I just recently added in, um, as I've been playing around with different, uh, different boots, you know, I've worn, you know, rubber boots in the past. Uh, I've worn hikers in early part of the season. I've worn insulated, worn insulated boots. And the truth of the matter is my feet just get cold. So I, I, I'm trying a new pair of boots this year. Um, they're gum leaf USA boots. Uh, they're made out of like 85% rubber. So they, they're, they, so they don't crack of the problem I've had with pretty much every pair of boots I've had that have been rubber. It was that they, they end up cracking around the toes. I make it about a half a season before I start getting wet feet. So I actually put those boots on yesterday and climbed with them so I could you know get a sense of how they were going to feel while I was climbing. And then of course was wearing them while I was in the saddle on my platform and, and shooting just so I could kind of feel how they're going to feel, you know, whenever I'm in, when I'm uh, at hunting height, cause I just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of surprises in life in general. 
and that also carries over into my hunting approach. I'm just not a big fan of surprises, especially when it comes to my gear. Um, I want to know how things are going to feel. I want to know how things are going to perform. Um, and, you know, just want to make sure that I'm going to be as, uh, as confident as possible when I climb into the tree. So that was what I did yesterday. And today I actually just got done shooting my bow. Um, and I'm feeling, uh, feeling pretty good. I do have one more set of arrows to build. And I have to say, man, like, you know, shout out. I know I had Brian on, uh, Brian Broderick from day six, uh, day six arrows, day six gear. Um, I had him on a few months ago. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to it. He's just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to hunting, especially when it comes to arrows and they, they've got some new broadheads that are coming out or that are out now currently. Um, but I just got a new set of arrows going to be building those and their components are kick ass and make it dummy proof. And they're just I don't know, the best arrow I've ever, I've ever personally shot. So if, if you're in the market for arrows and you're just kind of trying to figure out what arrows you're going to shoot this year and you want a tough, uh, you know, a good arrow that's going to be consistent, fly consistent and, and be tough as nails, I would definitely check, uh, check them out. Um, and if you're, if you like to build arrows yourself, uh, they make it pretty, pretty, pretty freaking easy to build a, to, to build a killer arrow. I'm by no means the world's uh, leading expert in arrow building, and I'm able to build arrows that perform uh, and are accurate and fly consistent. Uh, so uh, if they can make a guy like me who's not a great great at building arrows build solid arrows, then I think anyone out there can probably take uh, take the Day6 arrows and build some killer setups. So, But with that, today we have a pretty killer show. Uh, those of you that have been listening to the, the show at least for the past couple weeks, and especially for those of you that have been listening for the, the past several years, uh, Greg Litzinger is a good buddy of mine. He's been doing this look back series with me. Um, if you are new to it, we've done a couple previously here. I think this will be the fourth, I think, installment of it, uh, where Greg is really kind of going and looking at the various podcasts that I've done over the course of the past three-ish years and picking out nuggets that he finds interesting and uh, things that, you know, strategies, lessons learned, what have you, that other guests have shared with us. And we're basically taking those and talking about them. And I wouldn't go as far as to say to dissect them, but you know, I'll give you an example. You know, you, I might be talking to, at one point I had Bill Winky on, right. And talking to Bill and Bill is a wealth of knowledge and he has a specific way he likes to use trail cameras. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, Bill is also hunting in Iowa on a, on a private farm, right? So some of the strategies and stuff he may use may not a hundred percent apply to me and may not a hundred percent apply to Greg, but there might be an, uh, there might be an adaptation that we may have, uh, you know, made to a similar strategy or similar philosophy to get it to work for the areas that we're hunting. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're looking at these different conversations and beating, beating up the ideas and seeing if they've, they hold true for us, how we've used them, if we've not used them, if we've had success, not success with them, or if we've used them, but had to adapt them. And that's really what the look back series is all about. So I have my buddy, Greg, uh, the bow hunting fiend Litzinger on, and then my buddy Wilson McSwain joins us for this session as well. So without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. Thank you all for listening. All right, this segment is, again, with Steve Flores, and he's talking about using cameras in, in the mountains and how he, you know, what his strategy is for, for using those. So what mm-hmm. type of features are you looking for when you're looking at mountainous terrain versus flatland? You know, it's like, are you using cameras any differently than you would in the Midwest, and, and how so? Um, I, I mean, if I put a camera out, I usually try to put a camera in a funnel. And I'm not really, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't really use cameras a lot. I mean, if I do use a camera, um, it'll just be to inventory deer. And if I, if you know, in West Virginia, baiting is legal. Um, it's not something I do 
but it's perfectly legal. Um, if I put a camera out, it's usually over that, over, you know, a corn pile just to get an inventory of what type of bucks or how many deer are in an area. Um, but if I do hang a camera out, it'll usually be in a pinch point to somewhere where the terrain where will funnel the deer movement into one little spot, you know, and that could be, you know, I mean, most of these deer are lazy, um, especially when they've got to live their lives in these mountains, they're going to find the easiest route to move around, you know, in all this mess. So if you find an area where, you know, the, the terrain is difficult on either side and it, it kind of pinches down into an easy spot, that's you know, easy walking or easy access for deer, those usually, usually be the locations that I'll, I'll hang a camera up. Um, I've always just been fearful of, going and checking that camera <clears throat> yeah um, I, I i hear you there. That, that's my biggest fear i mean a lot of these guys in the midwest they can use cellular uh you know the, the cellular technology and or they can ride right up to it on their on their side by side or whatever they're riding they don't even have to step foot on the ground and pull a card out and go on whereas you know somebody like me or you I've actually got to go into that area and disturb that area right um to check that camera so Honestly, I'll actually use, if I hang a camera, I mostly won't use the information that I gain from that camera until I'm actually in that area hunting or I'll pull that card and then just kind of reference that information that I gather for the next year. So if I pull a camera card and I've got an area that saw a lot of doe traffic or, you know, saw buck traffic, then I'll kind of file that away and say, okay, next year I know that this will be a good spot. I don't have to go in. I can just go in and hang a stand early, and then I don't bother it. Uh, you know, but as far as going in and checking a camera every two weeks or something, it's just not something that I, I like to do. All right, so cameras in the mountains and tactics for how we're using cameras. As Steve had mentioned, you know, in West Virginia, baiting is legal. Greg, I know you have experience with uh, in, in New Jersey where mm. baiting is a, a thing that you're usually battling as well. Yes. PA, you know, we're not allowed to – where our family property is, you can't bait it at all in general because of uh, CWD yes. stuff. Um, but it sounds though like they they no might bait. be they might be getting rid of it in in general. But what Steve was talking about was really kind of using more terrain features as his strategy yes. in, in in the mountains for you know camera placement and yeah. stuff like that. And so even in flat ground, I'm I'm not a you know we talked about the whole summer camera checking it. And if you're putting a camera out and, and running a, a bait station or a mineral station, whatever trendy word people are using now. Um, to me, I think it's just, it's false intel. Yeah. And the reason that deer is there is because you're putting something out. You stop putting those things out, that deer is gone. So it's, you know, it's like a false positive. Right? Yeah, right. It, it doesn't, it's not going to help you take that information and go somewhere else. That right. information, you get off the camera, it's like, oh, that deer's eating your corn or mineral, salt, whatever you're using. Well, you can't take that information and go to another state or different right. terrain and use it. So if you're putting out a camera, why not put it in the situation where, where you're going to become better, you know, right. smarter, learn something. And you could take that information to another state or another, you know, mountain, salt marsh, whatever. It and shouldn't just be getting pictures. I think you bring up a good point because I think one thing I've talked to Chad and those guys about and people listening, Chad's my buddy from, from Exodus, is that a lot of times people look at a trail camera image and they just see the picture, yeah. right? And what you're kind of talking about is 
what's all the intel behind the picture exactly right it's it's you know it's not just a tool it's not you know it's it's not something it's not a toy it's a tool right you know which for me getting into hunting it was a like a novelty when i first got it oh i can put a camera in the woods it can take pictures look at all the squirrels yes and until it was used the ladder as a tool yes. and you start to understand I mean it's still there's like, so much you can learn from that right like just like simple things like especially with video mode yes. like I find video mode especially it's crazy you can learn how much actually how they're coming in and because a lot of times they'll, they'll station off because video mode triggers faster than a picture mode does so yep. you might get a picture that deer with here. his rear end pointed toward the camera but that it triggered late so yep. he didn't come in that way and yeah, you're exactly. like how did that deer get in front of the camera yes right. especially if you've got over a scrape yeah. You know, or, or or usually because I, I, I like hunting my cameras over scrapes. How they come in is real important because I think this deer. I had you know I put a camera over a, a very active scrape line last year. How I thought these deer were coming in, you know, it. I had the picture camera and that camera got legs. I guess one day and, and right. decided it didn't Peace. want to be on the tree anymore. Yeah. So the next camera was a a, a cheap throwaway um, video mode, and those deer were completely coming in. Not where I thought they would be bedded. So if I would have been setting up yeah. down there, it's like I would have been, you know, just wasting my time because they were coming from the right. I thought they were coming like in line with the scrape. Right. This the bigger mature bucks were actually bedding in this little low part of uh it was standing corn. That's a, a little low part and the couple of trees, I guess the farmer was gonna dredge something out or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. even know. But there's a little, couple little high knobs. That's where he was bedded. Hmm. And I'm like I never would have thought that no. was until I seen that. And then in this year when they cut the corn down, I went and looked and there's a few random saplings, but it's high ground and those beds in there. I'm like, right. ah. and this year, of course, it's beans, so it's not going to help me out at all. Right. But I'm like, next time it's corn, I know where he's possibly going to be bedding. And that's the intel I got from the camera. Like, now that information I can take to another place, you know, and I see a small little hedgerow or a group of, even in salt marsh, you, you same mentality. You see a, there's... Trees, that's high ground. Right. So you're not only learning about what that deer's doing, you're learning about what terrain features are playing, how the terrain features are playing in certain setups. Yes. That you can then take if there's a similar setup, you've got exactly. a better place to start. Exactly. You know, which yep. that's really that's really interesting. Like I started we were talking about that in the truck on the way over where, you know, what we were discussing was that, you know, Wilson eating a sandwich. Wilson eating a sandwich in his car. But also like you know, a boss. <laughs> Guys, guys and girls who have a lot of time to scout or hunt, right? They can they can play things a little bit more aggressively. They can you know understand where their deer are at if they're patterning a specific deer. That's you know the more time you have, the more opportunities, the, the better opportunities you should have. For guys like us who are just working dudes who are you know it's we're pretty passionate about hunting, but at the end of the day, we're still kind of like weekend warriors, yeah. extended weekend warriors. Yeah, hunting, I mean? hunting is number three. You know, right, we have families, work, jobs, family, and, you know, and stuff like that. A, a distant third at best. Right, so it's like what Greg and I were talking about was that what I've learned, and Greg's known for a while, but it's something, you know, I probably figured out more so two years ago and I've been trying to implement it more and more is that I'm hunting more terrain features than I am any specific deer per se. You know what I mean? And knowing that on this property, exactly what you're saying, whenever there is a food source here, I know that there is a saddle here, a bench here, a soft edge here. Yeah. These are the places I'm going to focus on as opposed to focusing on where's that buck going to live. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going, I know there's a buck bed over here. I know there's a doe bedding over here. 
this is the terrain feature I'm going to focus on. It's also helped me going to new states or just new properties I'm unaware of where it's like I'm going to hunt terrain features, not necessarily the deer. Yes. You know, which is another reason why I've been kind of studying that map book because yeah. that was a big piece. But well, it's interesting that you're figuring that out from, from yeah, trail cameras. Yeah, you know? and you know, we like you were saying, uh, uh, we'll talk about it another time. We'll get off track of this said topic. You know? <laughs> right, right. But it's like I got to try and stay focused. Low impact trial and error. Yes. Like if you bust into a bedding area because you want to get your camera in there and see what's going on, you put it on the wrong tree, yeah. and you're like, "Well, there's no deer in there." Well, because they're walking on the other side of the tree. Yeah. And but now you've just messed everything up. So it's like, weigh your options. Is there a, a lesser impact spot where you can have a trial and error instead of right. blowing it out and then being bummed because you got no pictures of? Well, that's too like bedding areas. I'm not a big fan. Yep. But if you do it for like guys, let them sit all season. That's great like i every year i'm like you know what come march april I'm put a camera out <laughs> but you know what i never do because that's like right. it's like work right you know and then i got a bunch of you go know, because salt marsh or it's yeah i might get one or two pictures but there's a lot of false positives on those things i'm not gonna sorry i'm not rifling through six thousand fucking pictures on a fucking sd card i'm like in the trash that one goes yeah, <laughs> right. i mean yeah. what we were talking about too just you know a little bit ago was related to baiting stuff like that is that that intel you know especially if you're like putting bait or mineral or whatever yeah. and like look if you want to put bait mineral because you just like to see a bunch of deer come into yeah. a camera like I by think, all means do I think it people need to be honest with that if that's what you're doing just admit it no, understand like, that like yes. you're just getting a bunch of pictures right yes. and that's and that's cool because that's not going to help you in October. Yeah, if you right? got five thousand acres, great. But if you're hunting a small little urban yep. woodlot and you're putting out minerals, and you you got twenty acres to hunt, I mean that's just that deer may or may not ever be ex- there. Exactly, that deer's going to come through anyway. Just find that where it's coming through yeah. and put one or two cameras and just let them sit. You know, yeah, and rainy day, sh- go pick them up and non-invasive. You know, and non- it's not show and tell. Like yeah. that, the bait pile yeah. turns it. The camera is slightly above the bait pile, so you can't see it. And then yeah. you get to show all your friends, like. I got seven yeah. booners. Yeah, right and they're here. all at the same time to stay. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, they're just seven whoppers just hanging out in the same place. Hey, what's up, Bob? Not right. much, Ralph. Just hanging out right here. Right. On a five-acre backyard. Yeah. Just hanging out. No, right. yeah, it's like those low-impact spots that um Even like huge. the, you know, Andre, you know, mm-hmm. Quisto, uh, he's big on that. He puts his cameras out where he can access them, you know, on big I mean, bigger farms, but mm-hmm. low impact. He knows deer coming through there, but he lets them sit for a long time. Well, he also is, uh, he understands what terrain features that deer is going to use. Yep, exactly. you know what I mean? And he'll know where he's going to bed. So yep. all he's doing is looking for proof of life somewhere that's exactly. low impact. And if you yeah. use cameras for that that type of intel, especially yeah. you let them sit for too much, you're going to get a picture if he's there. If not, that's not place you well, want to put a camera I, or hunt, you know, and then it gives yeah. you, all right, move that camera. That's why I like putting cameras out, letting them sit all throughout the season and then looking at years worth of data, because we were, again, we were talking in the truck on the way over. It's like in PA, you know, hard pressed in PA to be able to hunt the same deer year over year. Yeah, for four years trying to hunt the same deer. Is yeah, it's just not, I mean, Who it's only. Idiots. It's only happened to me once where I had a deer make it through multiple seasons where I could find him. And that was on a piece of private ground. I might have one in a swamp this year that I get to try to hunt for two years. You know, if, if he's around, I don't know. But what I've figured out, like in using trip learning to use trail cameras differently is I'll take that, you know, annual data and look at it and just reinforce are the terrain features that were useful three years ago, 
are they still getting used this year? You know what I mean? And understand that that is how deer like to move on a, on a given property or a piece of, on a, or on a piece of property. And that even on private ground, like our family farm, uh, or my dad's piece, that's how I started hunting that. And that was where I really kind of came, not came up with the idea, but that's how I implemented the idea because I didn't know much about the property, uh, other than doing some scouting. It, I live three hours from it, so it's like not like I could go and scour it every waking moment I had. And so the first year I really hunted it, I had to just use the data from the camera not to tell me like what deer was there, but how the deer liked to move yeah. on the property. Which you almost sealed the deal on that one deer yeah. that year yeah. because of your trail cameras. Yeah. Which yep. was sweet. And that's what I was talking about with like the data. Like when a lot of folks use the trail camera data, they just see the picture. But it's like what all information is there. And I'm not talking about just like the wind direction you know, the timestamp and stuff like yeah. that, right? It's like you start to think about, especially on video mode, when you see what direction they're coming from. It's like, and okay. The wind, you, you, the, you what direction was day. the wind blowing right yep. that day? What time is it? The what thermals, time? you know, thermals are playing a part of it. What time the, did he come through? And I'm not so concerned with what time he came through, but only in relationship to how long it took him to get to that point. Because yeah. now that will start to tell me, if, especially if it's in an, e- in an evening, yep. how far away is his bed? Exactly. Because now I can start to backtrack and go, okay, if he's coming from the north, if I look toward the north and he got to the field or to a field or to a funnel or yeah. wherever the camera is, we're talking about placing them in terrain yeah. features. And if he's using this, where's he going? You figure that out, right? And so then you can get back, start to backtrack and say, all right, if he passed through here at 530, his bed is probably, you know, X, X amount of, or X distance away based on looking at the habitat and saying this would be the next best bedding for him likely betting in this area so now you can start to move back toward either move your cameras and start to narrow down on him or just know that's likely where he's at and start to hunt him back in that, back like in that area we're saying time nobody wants to wait like when time is your friend in hunting <laughs> yeah you know, and hunting and fishing in general just knowledge in general like yeah. you know it's just compounding compounding on a daily basis and that until you like i put cameras in the mountains for the last couple of years and I haven't hunted where I put the cameras. This year will be the first time I'm going to hunt. And I had like six cameras out. And only two actually panned out mm-hmm. out of six. You forgot oh. to bet batteries in one, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's just not enough. Just the volume was yep. just, just shit. It was like, well, yeah, a buck might come through there. But one picture in six months. Well, Doesn't say anything. Yeah. yeah. Out of here. And that, you know, that I would call it like a hidden deep cut. You know, you, you look at a map, but don't look at deep cut. But. I found it boots on the ground, you know, right. back to the topographical yep. you know, map thing. And it was from November, October 28th to November 3rd, it was on fire, bus right. cruising. And the mountains, they, they, they cruise a little bit earlier than, than I find, like, down here in South Jersey. Right. And, I mean, mature deer, like, all day walkers. And I have one night buck picture, hmm. all from 9 in the morning to 12. So they're coming down, making this giant loop. It was like every, I think every two days, the same buck's coming through. So they're, they're on some pattern, and they're just looping right. through. So I know where I'll be, 28th, 20th, or probably 28th, 29th, 30th. Right. Um, I like to squeeze Halloween morning, but that's not going to happen because I'm two hours, you know, from the right. truck. Right. Three-hour ride home. Wife ain't having that with right. Halloween and kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's different on small plots, but, like, if like I've found a couple places – that's the spot to put your camera and not just don't mess with it. Yeah. Like every same year, it goes on the, like the same yeah. limb because yeah. why mess with it? I've seen a lot of posts recently, like trying out new spots, trying out new spots on a place that somebody's hunted for, yeah. you know, like they grew up there. Right. Well, if you found something that works, let it ride. Yeah. 
and then or if you found something benefit. that works and it's a piece of private ground that you hunt year over year, better yet, just leave it alone. Yeah. Don't even put anything. Don't in. Like, if you put you, your camera out, put out where you're going to get pure nighttime, like ten o'clock at night pictures, and where yeah. you're like over oh, right by the road, like double longer does that. He literally has telephone poles right uh, on the, yeah. Drive and literally you look at the camera and it's like right there. And he's like, I get out and get the camera. He Walter Dahl, stuff like that. Deer used to smell there. Mm-hmm. And he's just like giant deer. He goes, and he's time stamping those deer, like you say, with the bedding. I want them to be here at a certain time because I know that means they're bedding over here. Yeah. Or if they're going this direction, I thought they're bedding here. I know another bedding area over there. And that's where he sets up these last couple of open mornings. He's killed his big deer that way by putting cameras close to roads where he access them easily, but he's looking for a turf. He's looking for a timestamp. Yep. I was like, all right. Because he knows where the bedding's at. Yep. He's got two beddings. All right. If they're headed this way, I know they're bedding. And it's not a big wood setting where it's like you're afraid. Because I know you had experience where it's like, you know, we talked about in the last session, like one of the bucks you killed, your buddy bumped out of a bed. You're pretty sure he killed that buck or you killed that buck the next day. And then there's never been a buck in that bed since, right? But on these small lots, you know, or in these smaller parcels, like Lunger's hunting, they're like, Wilson and I yeah, are hunting in, in, in the burbs They're here. They're similar. Double yeah. longer Wilson. You guys are hunting the same, you know. Call me. Type, yeah. of, type of setups. <laughs> but uh, they don't have as many places to bed, right? So it's yeah. like there's just the percentages would say that a good bed in those scenarios is probably a good bed in general. Mm-hmm. And that a, if a buck gets killed, a new buck will likely move into, that, into that bed. So That's how my one spot is. It's like there will be a dominant buck there every year. Yeah. And... If that buck so doesn't get, takes all. Yep. Yeah, it's game over. Um, yeah. I had my first mountain hunting experiences last year. I killed a bear, but walking in the dark, I was bumping deer and it was like, I was like, what are all these things running around? <laughs> Cause you're going in and I wish I had trail cameras cause I was finding like little rock bluffs and stuff like that. I, like love to have a yeah. camera here because it's on a little point where you yeah. could see down yeah. whenever, when the leaves drop, yeah. they can see as far as you could see yeah. a man and it's all beaten out in there and you look and it's just hair everywhere. Yeah. I'd love to have cameras up there. It would be because it's so different from yeah, what I'm used to. Yeah. You'll buy a half dozen, put them up there, let them sit, it's let them get stolen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put them about eight foot high. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I think we covered, you know, camera placement, terrain features, and in mountainous, uh, mountainous terrain. So we'll uh, we'll go ahead and shut this one down, and we'll move on to the next segment. All right, so this is the third segment with our buddy Steve Flores, and here. He's talking about, of course, still mountain bucks or mountain hunting and specifically uh, hunting the mountains in late season. So let's uh, hear the take and then we'll discuss. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you have like a top five tips for hunting mountain bucks in the late season or like things that you follow that are, you know, a plan for to try to give yourself the best chance of success during the late season in the mountain area? Um, well, you know, like I said, a lot of guys, they'll bait. I mean, they'll, they'll especially when the later part of the year when most of the food is gone. They'll they'll start baiting heavily. Um, I I typically try to find the nastiest spots I can find because like we're this is our last week was our first week of gun season. This is our second week, and then gun season's over. Right. 
and then we'll have a we'll have a doe season, then we'll have a muzzleloader season. So the deer are really getting hammered right now. They're getting pressured, and they're not going to their behavior from three weeks ago has completely changed. You know, it's they're just there's so many people in the woods right now that they're not just going to be strolling around unless you get a you know you catch a buck that's on a hot doe. Right. Yeah. You know, then then you then you've lucked out. So I, I typically try to just look for some places that, like you said, people haven't been, um, you know, some thick, nasty stuff where a buck may just be laying low, getting up at, you know, right at the edge of dark, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, move around, um, or catch a place that's, that's got some younger does that are, uh, you know, coming into heat for the very first time. You kind of catch that, you know, sort of that second rut rolling around. And, right. I, I've experienced that a few times, um, <clears throat> mostly because I don't. I, I've never had to rely on that to to catch up with a buck. Um, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, if you can find a place that's got some does that still, you know, that are still undisturbed, you got some younger does that are coming into heat. You know, those bucks are gonna are still gonna look look for them and find you know um, chase them around. So that's uh, that's basically what I do. All right. So during that segment, you know, talking about late season, of course, in the mountains, there was a couple different things that he he touched on. We were all three kind of looking at each other, nodding our heads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. some different experiences with all with, <laughs> yep. with, with all these things. So a couple of things he mentioned was, you know, of course, there's some dudes that are going to bait. Right. Mm-hmm. That's given late season. It's the pressure has been on for a little while. Uh, that's not <laughs> that's not our style. Um you know, but he did mention, you know, Greg, you mentioned a three-week rule, yes. right? So we want to touch on a three-week rule. Um, and then, of course, finding places where they're, you know, where people haven't been, some hard-to-reach places. And there's, there's, a, y- there's younger there's does. younger does. So let's start yeah. with the three-week thing, because what you started saying during, yeah, while we were I, offline was kind of cool. Yeah. I don't even know where or who it was, but I just remember being old and gray. Maybe I was just young and he thought he was old, but I don't know. <laughs> But 35 he, yeah it was, it was i was, I was it, 18 he was 35 he's old you know right. it was, it was yeah. future greg yeah <laughs> the aging app you know right oh, no. <laughs> run by russian bots yeah. yeah uh but the three week well three week three three, three week. week rule is uh the guy was like every three weeks once you know the the, the velvet comes off their activity and everything changes food pressure you know, just life general. Mm-hmm. Every three weeks, you should be changing your tactics. What you did, you know, you know three weeks ago isn't necessarily going to pay dividends now. And I've always took that into consideration, you know, throughout my long, lustrous career of doing this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, every three weeks, you know, because once October hits, you got the acorns. Right. And in three weeks, boom, you're late October, scrapes. Right. Boom, three weeks, you're Ru- hunting doe bed- Yeah, you're hunting strictly doe beddings. Boom, three weeks, post-rut, whatever you want to call it, you know, and then, you know, and and vice versa. So every three weeks, you know, it's good to have a a different plan of attack. Right. You know, because food's changing, pressure, you know, weather, you know, there's so many variables come into play. So if you're hunting the same spot you did in November that you were in October, odds are you probably won't see a deer or September, October, November. Right. So you constantly got to be changing with the deer. Right. That's a good point, man. Cause I mean, you know, there's a lot of you know, people will say, you know, I'm not seeing any, any deer in this spot. Right. And it might be historical. Maybe they don't see as many deer as they used to see. Right. And part of it is, is like, well, one, it's the October your, law, right. The October law. 
one, if they've hunted it multiple years, like the same spot, right? It's like the habitat around them is changing. Yeah. yeah constantly. Yeah, the, so it's like a new uh, farm got built up with houses, you know, yeah. timber cuts or something. So that's one aspect of it. And then you throw on top of that, that there is like a three week kind of rule that happens within the deer's life. Yeah. that they, Their needs change every three weeks. It's like, you can't sit the same spot and expect, you know, different results if, if the dynamics are constantly changing around you. And that's, I think that's why and when you talk to guys like, you know, whether it's, you know, Zach or whoever from running the gun. public running gun, um, <laughs> but when, when they're, when you're focusing on hot sign, if that's what you're focusing yeah. on and you have the ability to be in the woods that often, yes. that's where that comes in really handy because you're really just looking for how they've changed over the course of those three weeks and what, what the changes yeah. are, yeah. you know, as, as it, he had mentioned young young does, right? You know, yes. young fawns who will early early those that were born early. Uh, they're going to hit fawns. the right the right weight marker and stuff like that to allow them to come in. Yes, for they come into the estrus sometimes yeah. in, in January because even December possibly late late December. Because I know after Christmas, I've found some big, you know, big rubs before, like really active rubs, and you know it was either a deer changes, you know, location or those uh, those came in heat. Because mm-hmm. they'll constantly come in the heat until they're bred. Well, most mature deer, you know, older deer, year and a half old plus, will already have, already have been bred. It's those yearlings that never had a cycle. We'll get that cycle in late December or January, but you'll see scrapes. You'll see some rutting activity. It's because there's you know a little fawn that's you know sexually active. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to mention too is like he talked about cover. You know, getting into some thick, nasty places and stuff like that. But, you know, I think one of the things, too, that you, to, to think about, and I did a session with Don Higgins on this because he is like, he's one of those, I mean, I know he kills big deer in October. He killed those two 200-inch deer yeah. in October. But Don loves the late season. Like, he loves anything that's around that, like, you know, Thanksgiving time frame and after he loves uh, just because that's when he sees his biggest deer kind of move. You're looking for those last handful of, of does to breed. But, you know, how much for you, especially in the mountains, you know, or, or Wilson, you know, hunt, hunt late season, just, you know, we can compare this to what we maybe see in like some suburban settings and stuff. How much do you see weather being dependent? Because Don, Don really sees late season being driven by, by weather. Exactly. If it's not cold, those deer don't necessarily need to get up and spend a lot of time in daylight. Right. Um, when it's super cold, they want to be, I mean, in my mind, I'm not a scientist or anything. Um, they want to move when the sun's out to mm-hmm. conserve your know, energy. Right. You know, and you've been freezing in a bed all, all day for the last couple of hours. You just want to get up and move anyway. You know, and right. that, you, you might have a, a, a window of opportunity. I mean, I've never killed a mature deer in, in January. I've seen them, you know, right. but a lot of times it's, it's too, it, by the time they get to me, it's too dark. So right. they, you know, if it's super cold, uh, a deer that's been pressured, you know, six ways a Sunday, you know, in Jersey especially, he doesn't move much to begin with in, in January unless it's super cold. Mm-hmm. He needs to eat. He needs to get fuel in his body. And if it's super cold, you know, he'll get up two hours before mm-hmm. dark, and that gives somebody an opportunity. But by the time he moves, you know, you can actually get a shot on, you know, shot on him during daylight. Yeah. I mean, on some of these small pot like pieces, it's like I've seen the same thing. So I've seen like this, you know, whether it was hunting larger tracks back home or whether it's hunting some of these small pieces, it's like I've definitely seen that where it's like, regardless, it's like weather's driving that and the nastier yes. it is, the more I see. So I hunted this, that, you know, I'll go back to that swamp because it was a small piece. 
I hunted it on some mild late season days. I did not see a single deer, mm-hmm. like nothing. Finally, we got a couple of those snowstorms that blew in, and then all of a sudden, now it was late movement, you know, late kind of the same thing that you're talking yeah. about, where it's like I was getting kind of dark deer, yeah. but it was it took that like super nasty cold snap yeah. to get them up and move. Have you seen kind of similar things? Because I know you have some more ag availability to yeah. You it all depends on when you know if they're still standing corn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the spots is they plant beans every year. Mm-hmm. So late season, there's no beans are gone. Um, there's no food, but there's bedding, and then that's the social game where it's like, okay, you find one doe, you found every doe now because they've all grouped back <laughs> yeah, up. Right. And I've been amazed in January, you see all the does come through, and you're like, oh, there's the herd, and then all of a sudden, here comes two or three bucks that were bedding yeah. just barely past them because they're back in their group, yeah. and I'm like, oh my goodness, and then one puts his nose down and starts chasing the deer and I, I was amazed i'm like what did i just see and then you don't grab your bow you're not doing anything because that social game had has come back into play where they're in that herd again especially in our area where we have right a well, lot of they're already the numbers compressed. are higher yep right and they're already yeah. compressed so they don't there's not a lot of option necessarily yeah. for them to like to be completely yeah. separated from one another 100 percent. the one thing too that's interesting that i that i learned and it it, it made a lot of sense when I heard because like what you'll hear people talk about a lot, and I think this comes a lot from you know, you know, hunting media whether it's written or TV or whatever where it's like everyone's like you know the best game in town during late seasons like food 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 right, and in talking to Don he was like, food is really only important whenever the weather gets nasty. He's like that's when you're going to see your deer feed. He's like, and I'm not talking about like the day before. He's like, I'm talking about there's a driving snowstorm or a driving rainstorm when the temperature gets mm-hmm. dropped. He's like, I want ice flying in my face. <laughs> like, he's like, I want the worst possible conditions. I don't want that. Right? Tor- tornado. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, because that's when they're going to they're gonna yes. hit the food source. Because what happens is, and I didn't think about this. It's like, I've heard of it from the guys who run the MS, MSU Deer Lab, you know, podcast and stuff. And I had Dr. Bronson on and we talked a little bit about it. But the deer's, a deer's need to eat throughout the season diminishes. Like their body biologically understands they're going to hit periods of the year where food is not going to be plentiful. So their body goes into a, you know, the tech, I don't have the technical term for it, but like slow down mode where their metabolism slows. They require a lot less food. So that myth of like a deer's got to hit the food source right after a rut because they're trying to put on, it's not actually true because their body has adapted to account for the fact that they're going to lose but tv says it's true well, yeah i know it's an like old guy said it yes right. <laughs> some old guy when i was 18 said it right which was interesting to me that he, and he doesn't say food isn't important like yes food is important but it's it's timely food is what's important it's on those bad weather days that are important and have you seen have you seen that as well i know whenever it's cold uh especially in jersey i don't care what some of my high pressure areas, we like this past January, it was cold for like four days in a row. I went out three days, three to four days, just the last. I mean, it was a struggle to sit two hours. Right. I left work early. I mean, it was like that cold on the salt marsh. So I got 40 mile an hour winds on, on top of, you know, just being cold. It was deer galore. Every deer that could be a pot, they just needed to move to stay warm. So that, I don't know, maybe they're, uh, uh Afraid to freeze to death, they sit there and still any longer. They could possibly freeze to death. It was like that cold. You know, the wind will just cut through anything. Oh yeah. You know, and it, you can only get out of the wind so so much. You know, it's just cold and deer were just everywhere. I mean, I, I had an eight pointer coming behind me. And I'm sitting on the ground, 
and I hear this coming through the ice. It was so cold, like everything oh. just froze. It was like, yeah. like it was no like it's not even a place that gets water very often. But it was just so cold, like it just had this layer of ice, or I don't even know what it was on top of it, like windblown mist or something. And the moisture comes up from the ground and like it, yeah. looks like crystal. It, it, draw, yeah, it draws it out. And yeah, just like, and this this deer coming behind me, and uh, it, it, I mean, he was fifteen yards. And by the time I, I hear, it, I'm like, keep looking behind, and there's already deer out in the field. So I'm kind of doing that, you know, like trying to look, but now I look like right. So I'm going, and the, my neck starts hurting because I'm like. <laughs> I was like, I need, I can't really see. And once I fully turn around, I mean, he's standing there just looking at me, and I'm just like, game over. Here we go. Thanks, buddy. You know, yeah. all season, wait for that moment right there. Like, if I literally, as soon as I heard him coming through, if I would have turned, but the odds, it was still an hour and a half of light left. Oh. And he was mature, but he was, he had to eat. So he had to move, get warm, eat, do something. So there was plenty of daylight, and he would expose himself. You know, he was going to come up out of this little draw, mm-hmm. which I didn't think they ever would would have done because it's not very much cover up along the field it's thick and nasty right. and this little draw is just open cattail marsh with you know so marsh grass right there's nothing there to protect him he was like dead out in the open right but he was just so cold like he was forced to move because three days of that temperature i mean then i found some out in the marsh where deer bed and freeze to death you, know, you see them oh. now you see it on social media them yeah the cold wind they just freeze they don't fall asleep they don't wake up you know, because right. they're so cold, their body's like Anna. You yeah, know, they're depleted and they're tired, maybe injured. Right. They just die. It's, it's funny you say he's like way out in the open because I found, I hunted like late season, it's cold, there's snow, you hunt the food source. <laughs> so I'm like going to the food source and I'm not seeing deer or it was too late unless it was like extreme temperatures. Then I moved back farther and to where it's like a safe zone. Yeah. Where they could get up and they're mo- like I would watch deer just kind of walk circles, mm-hmm. you know, and then munch a leaf. But they were safe and they could get up and move around, um, in some tight cover, and that was almost more effective when it's just neutral. It's still cold, but yeah. it's not extreme where they're like I, they got to get up and move, but they don't have to eat right away until yeah. right. they feel totally safe. And those late season doe spots have been been good. Yeah, yeah. well, see, even like us sitting in a tree stand, you'd be freezing cold. You think you're gonna die? You get down, <laughs> just even climb down out of a climber, and you're already warm. Just yep, that yep. fast. I'm sweating. Movement. How am I yes. sweating already? Yeah, yeah I know. but I think deer are probably the same way in that super extreme cold temperatures. Yeah. They just have to move to get blood flow. You know, yeah. just getting up in a bed, and going back down, isn't getting the blood going where it needs to go to, you know, survive. Right. I mean, I'm probably wrong, but that's that's your take on it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of truth. A lot of truth to that. I think I, I personally like late season hunting. You know, um, and we don't get much super cold days here. No, well, well, well not like the Midwest does. I mean, where Don's hunting, like out in like Illinois or yeah. whatever, like you know, you get those Midwest yeah, where it's like snowing well, and blowing. Well, we get the cold days. Our, our average temperature staying the same these last couple of years, but when we get them cold spells, it's like five degrees for like three straight days. Yeah. Well, and those are the days you want to be out. And these deer don't. They're not used to that because it's like, oh, it's 30 degrees. It's 40 degrees. All of a sudden, it's five degrees. All right, one day is not too bad. Two, three, four days is, it's like, all right, I, I don't know what to do. Like, now, some of these years probably never experienced that type of cold. Right. So, based on that, you know, I don't have any experience with this. I'm just curious if you do. Um, and I didn't ask Don this. Do you see better activity on the front end of that cold, cold front coming in late season? Because at the beginning, so... You know, I, I think always see it di- in the tail end. Always see it in the if tail you, end. If it's if it's going to be long, if it's a, a front coming in, we 
we don't know if we're going to get a couple of days of, of cold because you know, mm-hmm. the weather seems always be wrong. Oh, we got cold coming for five days, you know, one day in at 70 degrees. So I don't know. Right. But look, any type of the, the front's always good, but I like the tail end on a, on a longer storm. Right. Um, okay. Even like rainstorm, two or three days, I like being on the tail end of that. I think okay. I, I see more okay. bigger deer activity. Right. Even in field, just driving around, I see more bucks on the tail end than the 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 pre-storm i guess you would call it now go ahead uh dryer vents on the outside of houses i've seen deer literally like that's amazing stay you know people are running their dryer inside and it's pumping out that warm air and it's like i've seen literally two or three deer standing next to the house like it's like a heater. I'm like, yeah. that is right. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, meanwhile, you're standing freezing. Yeah. So jealous right now. Right. Like they, smell, they smell good. Yeah. I'm like, what? I killed a deer. I'm like, why does this deer smell like a dryer sheet? Yeah. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm not joking. It's like, because yeah. they'll find whatever um, bedding on this opposite side of the field where they're going to get sun to the very yeah. last second of the day. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like you got to hunt the sun because you're hunting a field that's yeah thermal thermal bedding thermal yeah. cover yeah. Well, it's yeah, thermal cover or, or southwest facing slopes yep. you know what I mean it's like where they can sun themselves and stuff like that I want to go back to the storm front thing because so late season you like it on the back end of it yeah. I've never killed anything in late season so take well, what I say with a grain of salt <laughs> right but just movement in general like yes. when you're seeing here you know yes. are, are you are do you like that even in October yes. The back end of it, because yeah. uh, when you see a cold front coming, a lot of a lot of people, or even I'll say that the day after the cold front, yeah, I'll, I'll see that's some, what I was, yeah. yeah, see some movement okay. in the, the first portion of the thing. The, but if you can get a three day cold front, that second day is the, the yes. day it's going to be money. Yeah, yeah. because deer might uh, it's it's one day might not change, any, and then I can I can hunker down for half a day, right? You know, but it's like oh shit, it's here to stay. I get you know go about my merry way, you know, right, right, and and, and weather short, ain't playing, yeah, and short lived fronts. You know, short little weather changes. It nothing really changes. It gets cold and warm the next day. Life. Right. It, it wasn't a a burden on anybody. It's right. those cold spells you get like two or three days. That's when I think you know right. the that, second second day seems to be money. You and, know, and depending on what time in October too, like that cold front, like a cold front in late October is like you love that. You know what I mean? And it's like, and I agree with you. I think it's. I always liked the second day better than the than the first. Yes. But there's also a lot of movement. Deer, as they go hard horn, yes. bucks at least, yes. will move more and more and more and more. I mean, they've done study, multiple studies on it where it's, that's why the whole idea of the October lull is kind of a myth because deer increase their movement on basically every week from beginning of <laughs> September through like the end of, end of the rut, essentially, but through the end of November, right? And then it starts to like taper back down. So I think that, you know that that first day can be good. Look, if there's a cold front coming through, there's going to be a ten ten degree weather yes. or temp drop. I'm probably going to be out that yes, first day. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's not, I'm not saying I'm not going like to sit that my day. Kill, my kill that my kill ratio versus you know sighting ratio. I might see more deer on on that upswing on on the beginning tail mm-hmm. end of that, but my I kill more on the second day. Right. So you, know, you that, have three days to hunt. You or say so you get a big cold front. You can only hunt one day or. or are you going to go like the first day and the second day, or are you just going to put all your money on usually towards the end? The the cold fronts, because I, I, my vacations are scheduled for certain days at work. I can't really change them. And I save like three or four personal days. And if I see a cold front coming, I will try to maximize because I got three or four days. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, I'll use two days. 
I will literally go up to the mountains or whatever on the, I know it's cold. I'm going up that night and I'll hunt the next morning or drive up that morning like the day after because I'm trying to time it with what I have at work. And maybe that's why I, I, that right. I've been more successful at that because when it's I'm using like my, way you're prioritizing. Yeah. With, with my days off. Cause I never really get that cold front when I'm, it seems like when I'm on vacation, it's a fucking sauna in <laughs> right. Hawaii. And it's like <laughs> first week in November, it's 70 degrees. Yeah. And I'm like, <sighs> right. I'm like dying, you know? Right. right. So like my, my cold front days are usually my personal days that, I, that I've saved throughout the year. Right. You know, so you're like, all right, it's coming. Is it really? Because you don't want to take off and then it turns into a dud. So yeah. you're like, all right, it's cold. All right, I'm, not, I'm sick. <laughs> Next right. two days, I'm not coming in. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Don't call me. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we got a little off topic with cold fronts and stuff like that, but it's all kind of related back to late season and how the weather drives some yeah. of that. And it's kind of how we got onto it. But I think at this point. That's all your fault. So. It's all my fault. Well, because late season is cold like pennsylvania the temperature does drop yeah. so like if it was that temperature in november we would go it's a cold front but in january it's normal temperature yes. yeah. and so you're still looking for a temperature change, change yes. regardless yeah, yeah. and yeah. in, in the late worse, season the better yeah in, in late season you get 10 15 is the way to go yeah you know five degrees it's well, not really going to change well, yeah, yeah. yeah 32 to 28 isn't changing anybody's yes. life you know what i mean yeah. it's like, yeah you so. get a couple of 10 degree days that does Definitely yeah. gets thing on their feet. And that's the thing. It's like when people hunt, I mean, that's why I like the late season. Personally, I've always liked it for a couple of reasons. The weather's crappier. So a lot of, a lot of people, even with bow hunting, they'll hunt through like the rut and then they're done and they don't break the bow back out. But they're like, at least where we live, and I'm not sure about you in New Jersey, but like we can hunt archery until we like can the, hunt Sundays. So yeah, well, <laughs> 99 poo poo, stick your head doo doo. Right. Yeah. Sundays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can hunt to oh, the end of January around yeah, around here. Saying. So there's a whole month left of archery hunting if if you want it. You know, you just got to bear some bad temperatures and some bad weather. But what you get the benefit of is way less pressure because there's not nearly as many people going out whenever the temperatures get that low. I killed my deer in the October lull. And then late season, or my buck I killed. And then late season, you're like, I'm going out, I'm freezing. I'm like, I'm inside, I'm warm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tagged out my cover. Yeah. Sorry about your luck. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, maybe I'll go shoot a doe. Yeah, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Well, then Step you and I, and then you and I go hunt together every time we do that in late season. We don't see a yeah, single thing. Pours rain. Yeah, it's awful. But all right, so I think we covered late season here. We will go ahead and wrap this one up and move on to the next segment. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Greg and Wilson for joining and all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And also be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It would be awesome if you do those two things for me. Also, if you are looking for a new pair of rubber boots, you can use the promo code TRUTH19. It's T-R-U-T-H-1-9. And save yourself some cash on a new pair of Gumleaf USA boots. And that is at gumleafusa.com. Before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Show you through the door.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.